Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 81. Great show on tap for you this week. Uh, returning guest, one of our one of our favorites, and by our I mean my, and favorites I mean great guests. And um, I am excited to be able to talk to him about a number of very important issues. But before we do that, let me uh, guilt trip you and blackmail you and try to persuade you to uh, give what you can to Counterpunch, get a subscription to the print magazine, keep Counterpunch going. We have a, a, a really an emergency right now in the United States as far as press freedom, as far as freedom of speech, as far as alternative and independent media. Not only is it the Trump administration and just like the Obama administration before it, but we also have this 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 looming specter uh, haunting the dreams of the Democrats in Congress called Putin and Russia, and the pretext of Putin and Russia and the boogeymen to crack down on dissent, to crack down on speech. You saw Counterpunch has already been targeted by the various McCarthyites and blacklisters, and you need to make your voice heard by supporting counterpunch and supporting alternative media that is really, I think, essential in these times. So please do consider that. Uh, also, let me make a quick pitch for my own work. Uh, Counterpunch is not the only place that you can find my work. You can go to my website, stopimperialism.org, and I would also ask that if you want to have access to my other podcast, where I have many other uh, new interviews going up, as well as a number of other uh, important pieces of content, videos and, 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 uh, and writing and all kinds of other things, Consider becoming a patron, supporting my work. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Uh, for as little as $1 a month, you can support the work I do. Uh, it goes way beyond counterpunch. You can go and check out all of the stuff at stopimperialism.org. Hey, what can you get for a dollar these days? It's like a quarter of a cup of coffee at Starbucks. So do consider that. Uh, I would greatly appreciate it. And, of course, you can send me an email and tell me you hate me, and that's why you're not going to support the work. Also, very much within your purview. All right, let me turn to my guest this week. Very happy to welcome back onto the show Robert Hunziker. Uh, Robert is an environmental journalist. He is a regular contributor to Counterpunch. And if I could say so myself, I would say Robert is one of the best environmental journalists that we have working anywhere. I read every one of his columns, and I'm very happy to have him back on the show. Robert, welcome back. Hi, Eric. Thanks a lot. That's a great introduction. Really appreciate it. And if I can add on to what you said about counterpunch. Um, I saw some time ago where Chris Hedges made a statement about counterpunch stating that it's one of the only uh, really pure, uh, uh, truthful, uh, real, uh, uh, piercing, uh, uh, you know, uh, online magazines that's out there that's not somehow sponsored by corporations or something like that. So, Counterpunch stands on its own two feet, and uh, they do a remarkable job. So much good information. So there's my two cents worth on Counterpunch, my advertisement for them. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you and me and many others that, that, that I respect, that I read regularly, are all regulars at Counterpunch. It really is like a hub for some of the best analysis, criticism, uh, and just in general, journalistic writing and uh, writing in general, actually, because it's not all journalistic. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. Uh, all right, Jeff and Josh, you, you, you've, you've gotten your pound of flesh. Let me move on. Um, so... 
we had a very important article from you, Robert, a number of days ago entitled A Record-Setting Climate Going Bonkers. Now, it's a it, it, it's an interesting title, and it raises a number of questions, and I guess we'll get into those. But before we ask the questions, let me let me give you an opportunity to tell us in broad strokes what is the the substance of that article, which I believe is one of the most important articles you'll read this week. Uh, what is the main thrust of that article? Why is this a record-setting climate, and why is that so important to internalize that knowledge? Well, okay. Uh, the World Meteorological Organization out of uh, Zurich uh, annually publishes the State of the World, the World Climate Report, which they do in March of every year. And my article was really teed up uh, based upon their most recent report. Uh, wherever you look in the world, in regards to the Earth system climate, you find new records set over the last year. And these aren't just minor records. They're big-time records. Um if you can put a tachometer on the world climate system, similar to putting a tachometer in a car, um, the, we're getting close to redlining uh, for the world climate. And, you know, if you drive a car long enough in a red line, you're going to bust some gaskets and your engine doesn't work any longer. And uh, that's uh, really how severe our climate, Earth system climate is now. And um, if you look at the records wherever you look, whether it's global warming or global sea levels or global sea ice extent, you're, you're seeing these unprecedented anomalies, uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, ocean warming, coral bleaching. In the USA, in February of this month alone, uh, and this is according to the NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, Believe it or not, in the United States alone in one month, we hit 11,743 new temperature records in one month. Unbelievable. I know it is. Um, and, you know, uh, we're really going through um, the midpoint of the Great Acceleration, which scientists say started post-World War II. What happened, if you look at uh, how they measure uh, the Great Acceleration, and that is a scientific school of thought now. That comes out of uh, out of Sweden. Um, there are 24 different indicators, global indicators. They look at everything from the carbon cycle to biodiversity to paper production, uh, water use, large dams, all these different indicators they look at. Um, we're in a new epoch, a new geologic epoch, and you can start with population because it took us 5,000 years to get 2 billion people, and that's up to World War II. Uh, Post-1950, we've added 5.5 billion in about 50 years. So there is just one, one great acceleration right there. But if you want to take a hard look at what's happening here, and just let the numbers do the dancing for you, um, and this explains this great acceleration that we're in. Look at CO2, for example. You know, we all, people who follow the climate know we're 400 parts per million in the atmosphere now. Anything over 350, by the way, is considered a danger zone. We're already at 400. Um, in the 1980s, the 1990s, it, it grew at a rate of 1.5 ppm per year. The last five years, we've grown at a rate increased at a rate of 2.5. So that's up 75% the last five years. That's acceleration. Look at methane into the atmosphere. We have 
doubled the rate of increase of methane over 10 years ago. And then if you look at sea level rise, here's another acceleration. The, the rise in the last 15 months previously took 60 months or five years to achieve. So wherever we look, what we're finding is that this great acceleration, which really uh, is uh, simply humans driving climate behavior, humans driving the Earth system for the first time ever. And in all of the different scientific data that we look at, um, it's accelerating. And that's dangerous, and it's going to lead to serious problems down the line. There is a school of thought um, among so a, a small core of scientists, and, and by the way, the mainstream scientists don't necessarily agree with this, but I think there's uh, it warrants looking into and thinking about the Arctic Methane Emergency Group, headed by Peter Wadhams out of Cambridge, and several other scientists, and you and I were talking about this earlier, Eric. Uh, they come under quite a bit of criticism because they think within a decade we're in serious trouble with way too much warming. They think you could see uh, up to uh, 15 to 18 degrees Fahrenheit average temperature in the world increase from where it is today, which would simply burn off our agriculture. And they think it could lead to a human extinction event. That's how serious they are about it. They think it all starts, by the way, in the Arctic, which is melting like a ice cream cone in July. And there is serious risk, by the way, in the East Siberian Sea, which is very shallow water, uh, north of uh, Russia that um, you could get some massive methane burps and that methane is a very sensitive heat trapping gas much more so than carbon dioxide and that has been spiking up the last couple of years as well so these are all flashpoints uh, meanwhile we've got an administration here and I think this is not new news to anybody, but one of the first things that Trump has achieved, basically he's achieved a lot of negative things, by the way. He hasn't achieved anything positive yet. All he's done is come in and cut and slash, similar to what the Visigoths did when they raided Europe uh, in the early Middle Ages. Uh, he's cut a billion dollars from NOAA, the National Organization of Atmospheric Administration. That's our lifeline to what's happening to the world climate. That's, that's our lifeline. The other day I heard um, uh, a scientist who works for NOAA explain how a particular scientist covers the Arctic, uh, how uh, their files were, were removed uh, from their government files were all deleted uh, on their information on the Arctic since the um, Trump administration came in. So uh, we've got our work cut out for us here looking forward. And um, if you look at some of the uh, results, uh, we can look at actual results of what's happening around the world. For example, for the first time ever, Eric, we have ecological migrants. China uh, moved a town of 30,000 people because of encroaching desertification. Uh, their deserts are growing at 1,300 square miles a year. The problem is what? It's global warming. Fertile farmland in China is turning into desert. Um, in China, the Langkang River, uh, which is considered the, the uh, uh, one of the major uh, commercial rivers in China, 70% of the headwater glaciers have disappeared, according to the scientists. Why? Global warming. 
uh, here in the United States. We, we've had our first ever ecological migrants uh, out of the Isle de Jean Charles in New Orleans, rather in Louisiana. Federal tax dollars actually paid to move them to higher ground where they've been since the last two to three hundred years. In the Outer Banks, off the east coast of North Carolina, uh, that's uh, an iconic spot, a 200-mile chain of islands where 50,000 people live. There are actually wild horses that live on the Outer Banks. People go there. Uh, it's like the Disneyland of the Atlantic uh, for, for people who like the uh, Atlantic coastline. Uh, parts of the Outer Banks are down to 25% of the original width. Why? Sea level rise. So you can go to Miami Beach, Eric, and they're raising the streets in Miami Beach by two to three feet, too much flooding. And it's especially challenging throughout the Middle East and the Southern Mediterranean, global warming that is. Um, and what's happening there is that that whole region is drying out. There was a uh, report done by the World Resources Institute uh, regarding Syria, which had its worst drought in 900 years. And that chased one and a half million farmers and herders off of their land into the cities. That was in the mid-2000s, 2006, 2007. The drought went on, I think, four or five years. But the worst drought in 900 years. And they believe that contributed heavily to the uh, uproar and the problems you've had in Syria, hence leading to this kind of a civil war environment they've got. Throughout the Middle East, you've got this problem. Tigris Euphrates Basin, which was the fertile crescent start of Western civilization, is losing water faster than any other place in the entire planet. So um, this is a far, far-reaching problem. And it um, uh, doesn't help when you have the United States not no longer taking the leadership position when it comes to uh, CO2 emissions. And we have backed out of that real fast here. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I think that uh, the rightly cynical listener would say, uh, even before Trump, the U.S. wasn't exactly the leading edge of the fight against climate change, but maybe more paying lip service to the fact. But certainly with Trump, it's it's a nakedly uh, antagonistic relationship with science and uh, antagonistic relationship with regulatory agencies that might at least to some degree affect you know policy on a lot of these issues. So I want to return to the political side of this in a little while, but I want to I, I want to address a point that you made uh, earlier in your comments, and that has to do with acceleration and the acceleration of all of these processes, because one of the fallacies, um, I think, for a lot of people is the idea, well, these processes are happening and they're going to continue happening roughly the way they have been. And that's false, because actually what we've seen is that it's not only a sort of an exponential or like an asymptotal kind of acceleration, the acceleration is triggering feedback loops on a number of these different processes. And what I mean is that the warmer it gets, the less ice 
ice we see, the less ice we see, the more methane released, the more methane released, the more warming you get, which melts more ice, which, and so on and so on and so on. And this sort of a feedback loop is not only acceleration, but it's like an exponential acceleration. And that only gets faster and faster and faster, like a snowball going down the hill. Yeah, uh, well, that's that's very true. You, you, and you don't really have, uh, you no longer have a normal climate variability. And I think what throws a lot of people off, and you're, and you're addressing this very issue, is that uh, people say, well, of course, we have, um, we have uh, hurricanes, uh, we have ice, we have melting, we have snow, we have all these things. That's part of the history of our planet. And it's true. But that's based upon a climate variability that's normal. What you're talking about and what's happening is we no longer have a normal climate variability. Now it's being fed, one, by human influence, and secondly, by the positive feedback loop that you're talking about, uh, where it starts to feed on itself. And that's where you run into the danger. That's where you run into the trigger points where there's nothing that you can do to try to turn it back. And the Arctic is the prime example of this, uh, as you also alluded to. Um, when you lose the ice in the Arctic, and the Arctic is heating up two to three times faster than any other spot on the planet. Um, uh, there are scientists this winter looking at the Arctic are absolutely mouth gape. They are alarmed at what's happening up in the Arctic. The ice is not even forming. You've lost your multi-year ice. That's the ice that's five, 10, 15, 20 feet thick that we've had forever. Uh, that's pretty much all gone now. So it's a thinner ice that you lose very quickly. And we will have an all blue Arctic probably within a couple of years. So what happens is one of the greatest reflectors in the planet has always been the Arctic. And it's kind of like our air conditioner for the planet. And it reflects the sunlight back into outer space, 90% of it that hits the Arctic, unless you lose the ice. And then you have a dark background, and then it absorbs the sun. When it absorbs the sun, it, in fact, um, warms up the water more. And when you warm up the water more, they have these hydrates, ice hydrates. They call it fire ice. You can take the ice out of the uh, depths of the water and the permafrost and light it on fire. Oh, that's methane. It's been trapped for millennia. And... Uh, uh, for example, the East Siberian Sea is very shallow, so that methane, if it's warmed up and released, will come straight up, bubble up to the surface, uh, same as if you got a teapot bubbling up and shoot straight up in the atmosphere. The Russian scientists um, have taken several trips the last uh, couple of decades into the Siberian Sea area, and five years, six years ago, they would find maybe a uh, uh, hundred meter diameter bubbling surface out in the middle of the Arctic where you have methane coming up. Today, they go to the same location. It's a half mile to a mile in diameter. Uh, not only that, but the Siberian permafrost is a major hazard for all mankind today. Russian scientists have recently announced that they're monitoring 7,000 pingos. Pingos are gas bubble areas on the Siberian land permafrost at the risk of exploding and forming these huge craters. Um, recently, I saw an article in the Siberian Times where they talked about the extraordinarily warm summers they're having in Siberia. 
and they have satellite photos of 200 bright blue Arctic lakes that are bubbling, just like you boil water on your stove, bubbling up methane. So um, this um, uh, self-feeding aspect uh, of a feedback loop, it's positive feedback loop, which is really a negative, by the way, <laughs> because one thing triggers another, triggers another, and they're all negatives. Um, it's very real. Uh, the Pine Island Glacier in Antarctica is irreversibly melting now. Uh, they've discovered that. And that's uh, a 90 mile by 10 mile glacier in Antarctica. So uh, it's, it's almost difficult to really capture in your mind um, the extent of what's happening because when I wake up every day in LA, everything looks fine. You know, I go out and every day it's 60, 70 degrees and the sky looks fine. The temperatures are fine. And I think most people, that's what they, what they think about the climate is what they experience every day in their life. What we don't see is we don't see where it's really happening. It's on the fringe where a lot of people don't live that you first see it starting to happen. It's in the Himalayas where uh, the Chinese said they lost 70% of the, the waters for one of their major waterways, uh, 70% of the uh, uh, glaciers, that is. Um, it, it's in... Um, the um, 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 mountain range in, in, in South America. Uh, what's the name of the major mountain range? I just the Andes. Love the Andes, where the World Bank uh, made a statement a couple of years ago that they're very concerned that they're losing the water towers for the people in South America around the Andes. It feeds water for uh, uh, drinking uh, and for uh, crops for uh, uh, several million people. And they're worried about that because if you were to fly over the Andes 30 years ago and take photos, which they have, and then you do it just a few years ago, you can see where the landscape is just barren in areas where they had huge glaciers. So it's a serious problem in so many different ways, but it's all happening kind of on the fringe. So we that live in these cities here in the United States don't really personally experience it the way the planet's experiencing it. Well, and, and that's that's right. And in fact, I would go uh, uh, one step further and say it's not only the planet that's experiencing it. There are millions, if not billions, of people in the global south who are experiencing this already. In fact, there are people in the United States who have experienced this. I would, I, I think, a very good argument could be made that the people who are still suffering with the lingering effects of Hurricane Katrina and all of the economic devastation that, that, that came from that, that they are, in a sense, climate refugees in the United States because certainly uh, the, the super storms, the super hurricanes, the you know off-the-charts intensity uh, kind of storms, this is now becoming a, an annual, if not semi-annual occurrence. And I think that this is another thing that needs to be considered uh, Considered. I've talked about it on this show with other guests, especially some who are in the South who work on the Gulf Coast. And I think that there is a growing understanding and a growing awareness that uh, particularly marginalized communities uh, lower on the economic ladder, that they are on the front lines of a, of, of a climate catastrophe. Similarly, we're seeing the same thing in the Horn of Africa. 
Africa right now in Somalia and in Eritrea and in Ethiopia where you have drought, you have famine, and these things are not simply, you know, your you know, your quote unquote run of the mill drought and famine, but kind of like super drought and super famine. So in 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 effect we're seeing around the world validation of exactly what you're saying and it, there is something certainly ethnocentric in the fact that many people in the United States cannot um you know have the kind of empathy for the people who are al- already experiencing this and rather see climate change as some kind of a academic subject rather than something very real very tangible mm-hmm yeah, uh, that, that, that's very, very true. And um, as you said, it seems to hit the poorer communities. And that I gave the example a little while ago of the Isle de Jean and Charles in Louisiana. That's really more of a poor community of people. And, you know, they lost their land. You know, they lost their land. They had to be moved. So um, you're absolutely right. And, and the other thing that we seem to have superimposed on this that's um, so strange that's happening at the same time as the climate is um, uh, turning into a hot teapot, um, we have this disparity, enormous disparity, the biggest ever uh, wealth disparity in the world. And the, the whole politics behind that and the uh, socioeconomic system behind it is so askew right now, Eric, that um, it, it's it's kind of like everything on the planet's going wrong. Uh, the socioeconomic system is in concert with the climate, and um, you almost want to jump on the bandwagon of these end times kind of crazy people that talk about the end times. You know, uh, that's what it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's there's something to be said, and I, I've mentioned this as well that. It's very difficult to wrap your head around the implications of what we're talking about. For instance, even a small increase in global sea levels resulting from increased melting at the, you know, in the Arctic, even a small increase, you know, a meter, two meters maybe, you know, this would literally devastate human civilization. I mean, you would have upwards of three, four billion people displaced, living on coastlines all over the world displaced. Now, obviously, a movement of that many people, that would topple governments, it would, dis- it would dissolve states, it would create global uh, chaos, really. And not only do the political and economic systems uh, have a difficult time surviving that kind of chaos, but all of the life support systems on the planet would have a difficult time. So, on the one hand, and I'm cautious about, you know, sort of the apocalyptic version of climate change analysis. On the other hand, I think it's irresponsible to downplay just how severe it would be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is. Because it's the kind of thing that's going to we're going to get blindsided if, if, if well, we are being blindsided by it, in my view, uh, already. And it's only going to get more severe because of it's just so simple. It, it, it's exponential. It's ex- everything that I look at on a data point uh, is accelerating. And if it keeps accelerating, then, you know, this Arctic methane emergency group is going to be right. OK, <laughs> we don't want them to be right. Uh, but meanwhile, if you just come down to Earth and look at what's going on right now in our own country with our own politics, take something really simple. Look at the EPA for a moment. 
where Trump came in and he's made a major cut. Pruitt, who's his secretary for the Environmental Protection Agency, or, or uh, took a hatchet to it. And um, uh, this is, you can't really make America great without the EPA, by the way. Um, if you look at what they've done since 1970, and that's when the Environmental Protection Agency was formed by Nixon. Uh, they've reduced the six most common air pollutants by more than 50%. They've reduced air toxins from large industrial conglomerates by 70%. They eliminated ozone-depleting chemicals. And they also, along the way, saved Americans $362 billion on utility bills because of something called Energy Star, which is a program that they brought out that creates more efficient energy production. All of these... The EPA has been very successful at doing whilst you've had the gross domestic product triple, energy consumption has gone up 50%, and vehicles doubled on the road. And then you've got somebody who comes in uh, like the Trump group, and they say, nope, we're just going to – they may even eliminate the EPA if they can. It's, it's insane. So now we've got insanity in our own – uh, federal government on top of already uh, a heating up world climate system. Yeah. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, before we go to break, I just want to make one more comment and get your get your take on it, and then we will head to break. And uh, the 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 comment I want to make has to do with the way that you described uh, the situation, um, you know, earlier on in our conversation, and you've done it a number of times. And I just want to point out for listeners why, well, why I'm such a uh, fan of your work in general, Robert, and and why I think the conversation around this issue needs to be as broad as possible. And that has to do with seeing climate change in the broader scope of the of the Earth and the bio sphere as a system as a living system and i'm not talking about gaia theory or whatever i just mean understanding that all of the different things that we're seeing are interconnected and that they and the interplay between them is part of this of this broader question about the survival of the of, of humanity because you know you mentioned climate change and in the context of climate change, you mentioned not only the release of carbon, but the depletion of the ice caps, but also the bleaching of the coral reefs and also the intensity of storms and also overfishing and, and ocean acidification and a number of other issues that, you know, to the casual observer would seem totally unrelated from each other. But in fact, I think we know that all of these things are interconnected, that they all feed off of each other, and that in order to understand the scope of the problem we're facing you have to see it as one interlocking system yeah that's true and uh one of the best ways to to view that is to look at the ocean system and what what's happening there um it's the uh, uh, it's absorbed uh about 90 percent of all of the climate's heat over the last uh, uh several decades and uh, they know that because they can measure it. Uh, they have 3,000 of these floats out there throughout the entire world in the ocean. And those floats um, uh, will drop down about one and a half to two miles and then very slowly come back up every 10 days. 
and they take salinity and they take water temperatures and all these things. So we know what's going on in the ocean and it's been absorbing most of the heat. So one of the things that's happened, Eric, is um, when we talk about global warming, we're missing what's happening in the ocean. And there's a theory that that will come back at us, that it will reverse at some point in time. If that happens, uh, the serious problem becomes triple, quadruple serious. And add to that, add to that, Robert, on top of everything else, on top, you know, this question of the oceans and the biosphere, uh, you add to that the sort of the wild card, the human element of something like Fukushima, where the actual broad, you know, call it macro level impacts aren't even known because there's a media blackout, there's total censorship on the issue. So on top of all of these, you know, for lack of a better word, natural processes that we're seeing, although there's not necessarily anything natural about the, the, the acceleration of them, but these natural processes add to that the human element of uh, the Fukushima radiation leaking into the Pacific Ocean. And now it's admitted at an uncontrolled rate that this really, I, I think, complicates the picture and really adds to the urgency of what we're talking about. Oh, absolutely it does. Uh, that's the biggest industrial uh, disaster in human history, by the way, Fukushima, and it's being hidden um, from the public in so many ways. Um, the uh, Abe administration has done a great job of that uh, when uh, the major uh, 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 New York Times equivalent newspaper uh, in in China uh, actually had a 30 watchdog team of journalists on the Fukushima incident when it first happened. And uh, as soon as they started to get critical, all of a sudden that 30 team uh, watchdog group of journalists was shut down. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, um, uh, of course, the Abe government passed a secrecy law um, that is extremely narrow. I'm sorry, not narrow, extremely broad. Um, if you look cross-eyed at the wrong, well, if you ask the wrong question, you can get put in jail. Um, and so uh, there's all kinds of um, both governmental, and I think the United States is in bed with the Chinese, Japanese government on this, by the way. Um, and we don't, it's being hidden from the public what's really happening. Meanwhile, they're trying to resettle Fukushima. I know. In the face of having holding the Olympics in 2020, which is absolutely insane, to completely absolutely insane. Uh, you know, you, you've got your former prime ministers uh, of um, uh, Kozumi, for example, in Khan, another one that are saying we don't want any more nuclear power here in, in Japan and we can't hold the Olympics. Uh, I'm in touch with some of those people, by the way, one of their former uh, diplomats, in fact, I'm in touch with. And they started a movement among some very high level people to move the Olympics out of Japan. How in the hell can you hold the Olympics in the backyard of a three nuclear complete 100 percent meltdowns? How can you do that? And they're out of control. 
they're out of control. That's the key. That that's really the key of all of that is that not only was there a disaster in 2011 that was kind of ongoing or simmering or however you want to say it, but now it's well known and it's well documented that it's completely out of control. Uh, and I mean, just think about the implications of what that means. Out of control. I mean, literally, it cannot be controlled. The negative impacts on the on the entire uh, species emanating from Fukushima and the radiation seeping into the Pacific. Yeah, and meanwhile, you've got a government that's this, this just shut down all news on it. I got I have my I have my most of my family sitting in California. Every one of them would love to be eating sushi right now, and they don't. <laughs> so on that note, sorry to the sushi eating Dreitzer family, but we are going to take a break. Uh, and uh, on the other side of the break, a lot more to talk. Let's talk some politics with Robert Hunziker. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. No, no, the living ain't Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Robert Hunsiker. Follow his work on Counterpunch. I really do think it's uh, some of the best environmental journalism you're going to find anywhere. Uh, not only is he a great writer, but he has, uh, I mean, he really loads those columns with a lot of information, a lot of important stuff to, uh, you know, to parse through on your time. So 
I wanted, I, I mean, I wanted to get this broader kind of overview of the global uh, situation before we really tackle the politics of this, because I think that that's really where things have changed since the last time we spoke, Robert. Um, because now we are in the, you know, dare I say, the age of Trump, the Trump era. And what this means for climate change, for climate legislation, for environmental regulations, but even more generally, what this means for uh, the United States and for the world. Because, you know, in effect, what we've seen is, is that the Trump administration in so many ways really does represent rolling back decades of uh, progress and understanding on a number of key issues. Now, let me just preface that uh, by saying this is not to say that any that Obama or any Democrat or anybody who came before Trump was really genuinely concerned with these issues or that they were even really making uh, serious efforts at tackling them. But I think we do have to point out the qualitative shift to the right that we've seen so extreme, in fact, that it really does imperil us all. Yeah, I, I, I well, I, it does. And, and, and uh, you know, I think you've got a lot of people who are scientists who work for um, government departments that are just kind of staring up, staring into space. They're just in kind of a blank stare right now. Um, and... Uh, Probably scientists around the world are in a blank stare right now because uh, even though the United States has never, ever been uh, an aggressor uh, on the climate change issue and trying to do something about it. In fact, uh, we've been very meek uh, all the way through. Uh, still, the United States is considered the leading country of the world, and it does set the trend on a lot of things. Having said that, the interesting thing, though, uh, and by the way, before I go into the interesting thing, I'm going to talk about China in a minute. Um, uh, that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Okay. But my, my take <laughs> on the Trump administration is this. My take on the Trump administration, they really remind me of the 1840s, 50s. I think you have to go back over a century when you had the Know Nothing movement. Uh, and you also, during that period, 1846, 47, you had the Amer American-Mexican War. And in certain ways, Trump's kind of declared war on Mexico, which is kind of a, a, a reflection back. And the other thing is the Know Nothing Party. They were anti-Irish, uh, anti-German, anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic. And you kind of have that kind of mentality. We've gone back to it. And it's that rugged frontier mentality, which I talked about in my article when I talked about going back to gunfight at the OK Corral. You stand on your own two feet now going forward. And uh, the people who voted for Trump are going to find out that they're standing on their own two feet. And a lot of government uh, benefits. They just cut HUD recently, by the way. And there's a county in Ohio. I just heard an interview with some people there. Uh, that all voted, they were like 80% Trump. Um, they just found out that they're getting their benefits through HUD cut back severely. That's going to ripple on through. I think, Eric, in two years when you get your next um, congressional election, it'll be a landslide for the Democrats. Not that that's even a big improvement in this country. But going on to what I was going to say about this world climate event and efforts, China 
uh, spent as much on renewables last year as the European Union and the United States combined. They're dead serious about this problem. And um, I think one of the things they've got to be applauding the Trump administration and the Trump administration's attitudes about global warming because it a lot, it creates a huge opening for them to yep. market market and sell to the world. Yep. Uh, solar, uh, wind power, uh, all these different things. Plus, it also is going to allow them to open up their financing mechanism, which is a challenge to the World Bank and the IMF. They've created fi- a similar financing mechanism for lesser developed countries in the world. And that would, gonna- be, that would be the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is really bankrolled by the Chinese. Yep, yep. And so they're going to displace uh, the World Bank, the IMF, and the United States. And that's where this is headed. And uh, I applaud, applaud them all the way. You know, it's interesting about China. We've talked about this before on this program, Robert. But um, the interesting thing about China is that there is obviously a well-deserved reputation as a dirty, polluting uh, industrial powerhouse, which it has been for for a long time. But uh, interesting to note how much the misconception really continues, because, you know, if you think of air pollution, right, you think of Beijing, you think of these like horrific, uh, you know, visuals of people with masks on going about their day daily lives. But in fact, uh, you know, the numbers and the and, and recent studies show that the Chinese have made the biggest strides when it comes to uh, environmental protections and particularly things like air pollution. Now, obviously, they're starting from a, a, a much less developed position than the United States. But I mean, just recently, we saw the news that the final the final uh, coal fired power plant in, in China is being shut down. I think it's going to be maintained only for backup emergency emergency purposes. And so they're no longer going to be producing any of their energy from coal. Now, obviously, it it must be said that, you know, transitioning from coal, they're still using gas, they're still, you know, importing massive amounts of oil and all those other things that keep their economy going. But to your point, Robert, they're increasingly moving in a renewable energy and sustainable policy direction, much more so than the United States, which I think kind of brings us to the Trump administration once again. Not only have they provided an opening, but they've created a very interesting dichotomy where the United States is now actively and openly belligerent towards Russia, uh, excuse me, towards China, as you see with the uh, questioning of the one China policy, the warmongering over the South China Sea, many other issues. But it's also kind of I think illustrates the nature of the two governments where now in the United States, you literally have a government that is being run by Goldman Sachs and ExxonMobil. And in China, you have a government that is increasingly moving in a sustainable direction. Now, which do you think global leadership is going to swing towards? (laughs) I think that the, the question answers itself. Yeah. I mean, and that's really the point here that China is, increasingly assuming the mantle of global leadership and it's probably nowhere more evident than in energy policy yeah oh absolutely it is absolutely yeah and it's absolutely amazing you know because um you know uh, you know the the republicans are still fighting the last battle against communism in certain respects uh but look at what communist china is doing uh so it's the dichotomy is amazing 
and then on, and then on the other hand, and then on the other hand, you have Trump and uh, you know his. Well, if you listen to Rachel Maddow, his you know BFF Vladimir Putin, but both of them have expressed uh, you know let's let's be nice about it and call it skepticism about climate change science going flying in the face of scientists in their own countries. Obviously, for the reason that the reason being because both of their governments are bankrolled and in many ways dominated by energy interests. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This country is controlled by it, as a matter of fact. And it may start with the Koch brothers, uh, who've kind of gone underground a bit. Uh, they don't they know that their name uh, is uh, uh, like uh, nuclear radiation out there. Yeah, right. Uh, and so they've gone quiet, but they're more active than ever before. And they control people like Paul Ryan. I mean, he's really a puppet uh, to whatever they want to do. And um, uh, it's amazing how they've gone around and controlled so many different local governments now and impact on school boards and things like this. It's uh, a throwback to their libertarian past. And that's what the whole Trump administration is all about. If you look at the people he's brought in, they're powerful, powerful, libertarian, right-leaning, right-leaning uh, individuals who don't think we should have any government at all. Yeah, and, 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 and you literally have some of the leading exponents of climate change denialism that are now in, in many ways in the driver's seat of policy within the Trump administration. Just one example, the Heartland Institute. The Heartland Institute is one of the leading exponents of, of you know, global warming is a hoax uh, narrative, and the Heartland Institute being within the orbit of the Koch brothers is also within the orbit of Donald Trump. Rex Tillerson and all of these other types. So in, in, in many ways, the Trump administration has kind of become a nexus for all of the forces that are seeking to undo any attempts to uh, mitigate the effects of climate change. I know. And, and here's the weird thing about it, Eric. Um, the real question for me that comes to mind is what do you do about it? How do you and myself and other people go about uh, it's one thing to hold these little forums or interviews like we've got and talk about it. Uh, in a sense, we're almost stating the obvious at this point because they're so blatant about it. They wear it on their sleeve, yeah. what they want to yeah. do. They want to destruct and destroy. And um, how do you, I, I honestly, I pose the question to anybody who's listening to this recording of ours. Um, what do you do about it? I think people need to think about that. You need to really think about how do we tackle this situation. You can't just be idle and sit back and do nothing. Something has to be done. I don't have any answers, but I'm sure thinking about it. Absolutely. One of the things that I that I talk a lot about on this show um, in in previous episodes is is about the development of independent economic infrastructure. In other words, where uh, people in their communities are able to make decisions that impact their communities, not just political decisions, but economic decisions, decisions about what to buy, about what to eat, about where to go to get whatever it is you need, things like that, whether it's, you know, school clothes for your children or, you know, food for the dinner table or a new cell phone or whatever it may be, that increasingly we have to think about developing these things in a 
addressing these needs at the local level uh, in order to be able to undermine the forces of global capitalism and corporate control that really do uh, act as the engine of all of these processes. So one example, you know, if you were if you were able to ignore Samsung, ignore Apple, and ignore the other companies that are making the cell phones and mining the rare earth minerals in Africa and, and in Asia and elsewhere, and instead you were able to go down the street to your neighbor who uses his 3D printer to print the microchip, to print the uh, hardware, and to build the phone and give it to you, if you had that option, it would be revolutionary. It would transform global supply chains, commercial shipping, it would transform investment, it would transform raw materials mining, and all kinds of other things in the global economy. This, to me, is how people really need to be thinking about the issue on a global and a local level and the interplay between those two. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Bernie Sanders uh, oftentimes talks about cooperatives uh, and how um, uh, people should embrace cooperatives and get more involved in business cooperatives. And there are a certain number of those already, very few, but some in the country that are very successful. And that's kind of what you're talking about, because there's an equality of purpose and direction when you do that. Everyone's fighting for the same thing. And um, that's kind of what you're saying, I think. Yeah, I mean, the cooperative model, absolutely. But we also need to be thinking about not just the economic model, but the kinds of technologies that are coming around that are going to enable us to do things that even 25 years ago seemed totally science fiction. Like, Robert, I, I think you and I talked at one point about these, um, you know, the, these uh, printable um, uh, translucent solar cells where yes. where yes. you could where you could literally have the windows of your house acting as solar panels generating energy to the point where no structure anywhere would really require external uh, power sources that it would that every home every office building would be in in effect a self-sustaining uh, uh, you know power plant yeah I think um, MIT scientists have already uh, perfected that in fact it's yeah. just not the Market. Exactly. Yeah. And, oh, and, and, and they have ones that I've seen uh, uh, solar panels that are now on these like large industrial sized spools where you could unroll them literally like like you would unroll a carpet or unroll, you know, sod for a new lawn. You literally unroll them and you can make your roads, your bike lanes, your sidewalks. You could make them out of solar panels or solar cells, solar surface. And everywhere you go, everywhere where you walk every surface you sit down on and you you know put your cell phone on could be charging your 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 phone your computer your you know whatever it may be i mean we're on the verge of many technological breakthroughs that would be transformative so long as they are not subject to the forces of global capital yeah i know well you know our the, the international space station uh relies one hundred percent on solar power, and it has, you know, for what a couple decades now. Um, and so there, there you have NASA that uh, uh, created uh, <laughs> living quarters for our astronauts with twenty four seven solar power, which is uh, overseen by our U.S. Congress. But yet Congress could never see its way to really, on a nationwide basis, 
uh, scale up solar power for the country, could they? Well, and, and that's that's really what I'm getting at here is because I'm not saying that there's no use in electoral politics and that we shouldn't be lobbying our representatives. I'm not saying that. Of course, you can do all of those things. But to me, it's pretty clear that there's a there's a structural inability of political leaders in the United States or really most of the world to be able to actually address these issues that rather the only real substantive, uh, you know, fundamental solutions are going to come from the communities and particularly the communities that are on the front lines of these of these uh, impacts. You know, a, a number of episodes back, I've plugged this a couple of times now because it keeps being relevant. I was talking to Kali Akuno of Cooperation Jackson down there in Jackson, Mississippi. This is exactly the initiatives that they're working on, building this sort of grassroots democratic power, but also an economic infrastructure that will allow the people in that city to be able to generate their own consumer goods, their own, uh, you know, um, uh, building materials, their own, you know, you name it. This kind of independence, I think that's really the direction this has to go because if we wait around for the government to improve on this issue, we're going to be waiting until we're all underwater. <laughs> Very well put. What, what, what city is that you were just talking that's about? That's Jackson, Mississippi, That the organization Cooperation Jackson. Really? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and they're not the only ones. It's just one that I'm mo- probably more, more familiar with than others. And, uh, you know, they're involved in exactly what I'm talking about in building the kind of resilient community, sustainable infrastructure that's really going to be necessary to combat these things. And by the way, uh, Kali Akuno is a, a, a big activist on the climate change issue as well. It's fundamental to all of the work that they do. Wow, that's impressive. I'll have to look th- look that up and check it out. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not just trying to plug them. I mean, there's, I'm sure, many other examples, but it's one that we can look at that exists right now that is working to address a lot of these issues. And this is part of why I, I always kind of urge people not to be too cynical, not to be, you know, too uh, negative about all of these things, but to really think about solutions because ultimately that's what it's coming down to. And, you know, Robert, you and I have talked about this many times before. That there is also this, um, you know, generational issue. I find that a lot of the sort of uh, overly deterministic, overly uh, sort of uh, apocalyptic views come from people who are not thinking about future generations who, you know, for me, uh, you know, and my young infant son, I have to think about his future and the future of his children and their children. And how do we build something that's actually going to survive beyond us? Because unfortunately, I do worry that all of this is going to come crashing down on the, on us in my lifetime. Yeah, and uh, all arrows point in that direction right now, Eric, as we speak, by the way, uh, regarding the climate, that is. Uh, This acceleration of the climate is a very, very serious matter. And I I know it's really difficult for people to um, capture this in their mindset. It really is, because I've talked to, I hear from a lot of people. I get a lot of emails, from actually from around the world. Uh, I get a lot from Germany, for example. And um, uh, I, I can the, the thing that the thread that seems to go through those is yes, but uh, yes, I understand what you're saying, but I, I don't really I feel paralyzed. I don't really know 
what to do about it, yep. and the problem's so much bigger than myself, than me. I, I just don't know what to do. And I think most people with the global climate thing really feel that way. They're paralyzed. They don't know what to do. You can talk about it all you want, and it's easier to kind of look the other way and move on with life. And this is one of those issues that's so big, you almost it forces people almost to look the other way. That's one of the big problems we've got in trying to address this issue. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's one of those things that it's 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 so big you can't see it. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it's it's too big. It's not a you know, it's not a scandal with the White House. It's not a war in a in a in a place in the world. It is the entire world, and it is every single one of us, and it's everything that's uh, on you know on this planet. So in a sense, yes, I I, I think it sometimes it's so big and so overwhelming that it's easier to just forget that it's even there. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, kind of like and, student debt. <laughs> that's beautiful thank you well, appreciate that <laughs> that's very good yeah that is kind of like student student debt well but, no I, I say that I say that for humor but as somebody <laughs> who lives with that I mean it really is it's 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 the albatross that is forever hanging from your neck and climate change and, and all of the associated issues is really kind of the global albatross isn't it sure is it sure is yeah and uh, not many people can wear that very comfortably. So, um, you know, it's a, it's really a tough one. It really is. Um, and I see it all the time. I hear it all the time. And I get a lot of feedback on the articles that I, you know, I've written maybe 300 articles now um, over the last just five years probably. And uh, most of them about climate and Fukushima and things like that. And uh, the feedback I get from people is really on one hand, it's really encouraging to hear they want to hear about these things. They really do. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a certain melancholy. There's yeah. a certain sadness involved because they all seem to resign themselves to, uh, I, you know, I wish that I could go out and scream to the world, let's fix this, you know. And um, I don't know. I mean, how this is going to shake up. Uh, it's really hard to say. You've got, as you and I talked about before this program today, Eric, you've got some extremists who are some really smart people out there like Guy McPherson, the scientist from um, Arizona, uh, who um, uh, actually travels the world preaching the end of the world uh, on a scientific basis based upon all of the um, positive feedbacks that he sees happening. He's identified, I think, 30 of them now that are occurring in the planet today that are not part, not part of the normal climate variable, not part of it. It's that's the accelerated climate change once again. And he believes as a result of that, that, um, all hell's going to break loose within 10 years. Yeah, you know, you know my, my thing about that, and, and I know, I know his work and I'm certainly not, uh, I, I'm not uh, – uh, I don't have the academic background to be able to say I agree or disagree necessarily. But what I will say is one of the dangers I think in, in, in viewing this issue in those terms is kind of what you were getting at is how demobilizing it is because once you resign yourself to the fact that climate change is going to destroy us all and there's nothing we can do about it, well, if there's nothing we can do about it, then let's do nothing. You know, yeah, and, and, and that, that in and of itself is a really is a really problematic feedback loop, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. He's preaching the wrong message. He really is. And that's too bad because he's a very bright guy. He really knows his stuff. And a lot of the things he's saying are true. And the only question mark going forward the next decade is what, you know, you've got the human, humans are driving the climate now. We, we really know that. We see that. There's no, it's not even debatable. Um, can they drive it in a positive way instead of a negative way? And that's the big question mark, isn't it, going forward? And to find that out, you really need a coming together uh, of the world community around the issue. And there may be something that jars that loose and does that, by the way. Um, so can there be can things be done? Yes, they can. Are things being worked on? Yes, they are. Um, there's some, you know, geoengineering things that are being worked on. That's very controversial stuff. I know it. I hate to even touch it and get into the subject very much, but removal of CO2 from the atmosphere, for example, is one thing that's being worked on. Oh, Robert, are you opening up a chemtrails can of worms here? No, 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 no. I don't want to go there. (laughs) But uh, no, I mean, some serious scientists who are working on some things that may work, they may not. But, you know, that's our great hope is that somehow technology is going to reign supreme in the climate arena somehow. We don't know what it is yet. Or, yeah. or it could just be, you know, technology used by the 0.001% who survived to hunt down the rest of us survivors. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I... I have one. I have one more question, and it's probably not the uh, you know the, the the typical question you would get, but it's of interest to me. And we've talked about this before as well. I feel like that's the fifth time I've said we've talked about this before, but uh, we have. And the question I have it has to do with uh, feedback that you've gotten, and I'm just wondering if you've ever heard from people who tell you about their journey from climate change denial to climate change acceptance, because this is something that's particularly fascinating to me. And now that we have uh, it's always been fascinating to me because of my own uh journey on the issue but specifically because now we have an openly antagonistic administration that openly espouses climate change denial uh to uh, to such a degree that it's i mean sometimes it's breathtaking just just how serious they are in denying all of this stuff and i'm just i'm wondering are, is there a chance that because of the Trump administration, we're going to see an increase in climate change skepticism, or is it maybe going to flip people the other way? Uh, what's your read on that issue and, and climate change denial in general? Well, I think it, it will flip people the other way, because one of the silver linings to the Trump administration is all the warts are being exposed now. Mm-hmm. They're bringing them all to the surface all at once all the warts that have hung around this extreme right movement that's kind of captured our governmental system over the last four decades since Reagan, if you will, he kind of lit it on fire. Um, They're coming to the surface and they're exposed. And I think that the ordinary people who never understood this before are now starting to understand. I do, by the way, I have heard from some people answering your question more directly who were skeptics who now do believe in the climate change problem. And before they were skeptical, the reason they now believe in it is they've been reading articles like the ones I write, for example, and other people. Once they study it, they go, "Uh uh-huh, this really is there, isn't it? So, uh, yes, the exposure that the Trump administration is giving to uh, the climate change denial side of the equation, I think will convert a whole bunch of people. Because 
then they're going to start looking into it more. They'll be more sensitive to it, more sensitized to the issue. So I think that'll be a positive. Well, then go ahead and preach that gospel, Donnie boy. I'll do it. I promise you. (laughs) Well, I meant Trump to go ahead and preach the denial gospel so that he'll he'll give us some reverse converts. That's it. You got it. There you go. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, We we could do a lot longer, but, uh, well we're over time already. So, uh, Robert Hunziker, one of, one of America's leading environmental journalists and a regular contributor to counterpunch follow his work there. Robert, thanks so much for coming back on counterpunch radio. Great, Eric. Thanks so much. Listeners. Thank you. As always check you again next week.